the scripture reading is taken from the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Chapter 3, starting at the 10th verse. 2 Timothy 3, 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, so what Richard referred to is uh, this bulletin that Allison has so well prepared. It looks great. I like the photo on the front. We're introducing a new ser- sermon series today, and we're calling it Junk Drawer, because June, it's getting more and more like this a lot of the time, but June... Uh, begins kind of a stretch of, of Sundays where you don't know who's around, kind of, right? Like uh, summertime. So often what ministers will do is build a sermon series that doesn't, well, it doesn't build one upon the other. They're kind of standalone sermons, so if you miss one, it's fine. So we determined that the metaphor we would use is junk drawer, which really, uh, when you open your junk drawer at home, please say that everybody has one, right? And there, when you open that drawer, you don't know whether you're going to get a hidden treasure or something that, you know, you say to someone else in the house, what's this for? What do we need this for? Is this important? So we're going to use that as a metaphor and talk about what really matters in faith. And this is the guiding motivation that as we witness to our faith and as we witness to the love of Jesus Christ, imagine you're sitting with someone who doesn't know anything about the Christian faith or knows very little and doesn't go to church regularly. And they say, don't you believe this? And they pick some finicky little thing that might look, you know, make the Christian church look really judgmental or something like that. And, and that might be something from the junk drawer that you're like, I don't really know that that's that important, right? Um, and so we're going to do a series on that, uh, except here's the problem. I sat down to finish the sermon yesterday, often early on Saturday mornings, I kind of finish it up. I've written it for the most part and, uh, and go early Saturday mornings. I won't, I'm not going to, yeah, to J.J. Bean, I'll tell you, but don't bother me. But anyway, um, go there really early in the morning. You'd have to get there early and start writing away. And I started doing that. I was praying. I got a nice little alcove there. And then I just felt really led to preach something different. And so all of this stuff that we have in here, we're going to have this component that says, what's this for? Today's service is this. It's not going to happen. But it is a lovely bulletin, isn't it? Yeah, so. And the, and the song selection, everything was based on that. So... Hopefully, I have something by God's grace to say, because I felt, I felt at least that uh, uh, it was something to, to do. I felt led by the Spirit in this. 
Um, and I understand the context of why I'm doing this in terms of the timing and the life of our church. Um, but interestingly enough, as I tell you that I switched the sermon up, I actually don't feel that some of the illustrations that we'll give where we're at as a church and decisions we have to make, I don't feel those as the most important things. <laughs> in other words, as God, I feel by the Holy Spirit, calls me to do something different in the sermon, it is likely about something bigger and other than even some of the, the practicalities that we'll mention. So it would seem to be exceptional. I mean, I guess you could have a, we could have ministers that every week just switch it up. We were going to do this. Next week I'll do it too. We'll never get to the junk drawer series, right? Um, that the whole series was unnecessary. Uh, and you could have a minister that's like, well, you know, I had another sermon prepared and I'm not going to preach that either. Uh, but the very, the very fact that we don't do this often makes it exceptional. And sometimes we can think that if God speaks, when God speaks, there's an exceptional nature to it. But what we need to be able to do individually and collectively is learn to listen to the voice of God even on the most ordinary of days. So even though I'm outlining an exception this morning, I'm asking you to listen to the sermon in such a way that you are guided by this question, what does it mean, Heavenly Father, for me to listen to you and for you on the most ordinary of days? I'm telling you this now because many of us as a church, and again, I say this as um, illustrative, it's an illustration of this listening, but it is not the most important thing. So if you don't feel like you really care about big issues that the church is facing, that's kind of okay. I'm fine with that. You'll read your own life into some of these considerations, I hope. But it is true that for us as a church, we are going to need in the next number of weeks to be good listeners, good listeners to God and good listeners to God through one another. Spiritually, in the days ahead, there are important decisions ahead of us, things that are too big for human calculation. When I say that, I don't mean to scare you like, oh, there's no way we can figure this out because I don't feel that at all. What I mean when I say too big for human calculation is that some decisions are obvious and just don't require a lot of searching. Decisions we have to make might become that as well. But you can reach the point with something in your own life where you say, I don't know what to do here. I really don't know what to do. There could be two choices in front of you or a myriad of choices And you have in your mind, and even in your prayer, and those people who tell you that God always tells you exactly what to do, well, that's not how my faith has worked. Often when I'm searching for direction on something, God says to me in prayer, I believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the counsel of other people, God will say, well, you can choose. You can reach this point of saying, I don't know what to do, that is not necessarily desperation. It can simply mean that the resources and plans that you have been working with to this point and even potential outcomes don't present an obvious course of action. So, in this practical matter, what I'm referring to, though I'd like you to read your decisions and challenges into this, but for us as a church, obviously this references the church building. And I say this with joy, not with uh, denigration of the past, but I'm standing here on a Sunday when I am aware, and I can make you aware as well, some of you already are, that the church as we know it is kind of done. The building. What I mean is, we don't have the option of just keeping it the same. 
we're either going to spend a lot of money fixing it, or we're going to do something different, and we don't know necessarily what that different looks like. That's where we are. Now, if I tell you that without faith and hope in God, some people even with faith and hope in God, you can move to desperation. Uh Uh-oh, are we losing something? Well, we might be letting go of something, but we have an awful lot to gain. And we've done some really good and important work here over the last number of years that has put us in a place where we are ready to hear God's call to something new. We're going to find out this coming week. James, I'm looking at you. Is it true that it's this coming week? Okay, we don't... All right. June 5th, Tuesday. We're going to find out Tuesday what the bids are to fix the building because it's a... You know, some of you live in stratas where you've had to do the building envelope or something, and it's a crazy amount of money. Uh, this is that. This building is that. Built in 1996, right at the time just before the code changed, and uh, we have a leaky wall, particularly the wall um, where the offices are. The wonderful thing, wonderful thing about it is that I well, I mean, people can have different ideas or things that they're compelled towards, but we are faced with this question of what should we do. When we hear the numbers, it may well become obvious. In other words, you might think, well, we're really going to have to spend a lot of time searching and soul searching over what to do. Uh, We might get the numbers and it might be like, no, we don't need to do any soul searching. (laughs) Right? Um, It might become obvious. There'll be a quick resource and cost-benefit analysis. But I want to tell you this morning, and this is what I feel the Holy Spirit was leading me to yesterday, that I have something better in mind as pastor and something I feel a strong call in my life as the pastor of this congregation at this time in the history of this church. That when I pray about the wall, when I pray about the building, when I pray about the future, God calls me to something better, and that is this listening. Not what will you do, and what will you build, and what decisions will you make, but will you listen to me for what I have for you next? There is hope in that. And I'm telling you that it is future. This is about where we are going and what we are to do as a church. Not about how to simply hang on to something that we have had. When you listen, when you listen in prayer, and I want to note here that I'll say things like, I really felt the Lord say to me, or the Lord said to me, or I heard God say this. Do you know, I just want to note, for particularly I think of my non-Christian friends or something, that must sound insane. God, He told you, really, about the wall. (laughs) But we do this. Lord God, let us hear your voice. So how does God speak? And how would you tell a non-Christian friend what you believe about how God speaks? Well, you could draw it out further, but... Basically, God speaks in prayer. We pray and we listen. God speaks in the community, each of our lives. So my life, by God's grace, not my, by my doing, but my life ought to speak to you if you're listening. And I will say with confidence that your lives speak to me. We speak in community. And sometimes we might even share a word for somebody else. I was praying for you and I felt this. God speaks in prayer, in community, God speaks in circumstance. I have asked, it could be on, this isn't in my notes, but I have asked for years in this place, though I love ministering here and working here. I did this before sabbatical, when it was probably in some ways a little more, not difficult, but had a little more of an edge to it. Lord God, would you change us? Would you call us to something new? 
And then I was blessed with this time of prayer and listening on sabbatical. I continued to pray it, not from discontent, and God blesses us with something like a problem that doesn't allow us to stay the same. I am at the place where if we didn't have this problem, I would probably not feel as good as I do. Honestly. God speaks in circumstance. It takes sometimes a great deal of faith to say, I'm facing this problem, and without knowing the outcome or how we will have resources in your own life, in the life of a church, in your own family situation, whatever, it takes faith, I understand, and the grace of God to get to the place where you can say, though I don't know the outcome, I do trust in God. And when, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you truly do that, well, then you know what it means to be alive. So God speaks in prayer, community, circumstance, and word. God speaks through his scripture. And the word is always something that we align with Jesus Christ, the revealed living word of God. So remember, the word, the Bible is the word about the word. And so if God, you think, someone's telling you God says this, and they're either using a scripture verse to make it sound like that, or they're using just circumstance and whatever else, you must test these things against the Word of God. That means the Bible, but even more than that, it means interpreting the Scriptures through the reality of Jesus Christ. Always Jesus, always Jesus, and be careful about disconnected declaration. So I read this week about an evangelist who told his large church and listening audience that God told him, so it would be like this if I told you this. God told me that you need to buy me a jet plane. Why are you laughing? <laughs> His fourth jet plane. And the reason is this new one is $54 million. And he has two reasons. Because it helps him to fly around. Because his third one requires refueling. The fourth one, the $54 million one, would allow him to travel around the world without stopping, or, you know, as far as, and that means he can go and evangelize quicker. And also he said, (laughs) and some of you might empathize with this, also he said, um, commercial travel is full of demons. So be careful when you listen. I don't know. I'm not. I don't know what God told him, but I know that it, what, who Jesus is, and how you get to that seem very different to me. Here's the interesting thing. I bet he'll get his 54 million. If we do well with walls and buildings and repair and construction projects, that's good. If we get through this project or we do something here or we do something new or whatever it is, we will be able to feel good about ourselves. And and how we treated one another, which there's another principle in there. Remember as we go through this that it, in, in church, it's always more important to be committed to one another than it is to be committed to an outcome. We've lost that, so we go from church to church. We, we break our commitments even to one another because we want something. We want an outcome, you know. So always check that in your prayer life. Even if you feel compelled really strongly about something, there's no problem with feeling strongly about something, but the question would be, how are you maintaining your commitment to people more than ideas and outcomes? So if we do the project well, then that'll be good. But if we learn together to listen, now my heart warms as a pastor, right? If we learn together to listen, and if we experience the presence of God in that listening, even if it's not 
you know, an intense months-long process, even if it becomes obvious, if we experience the presence of God in that listening, and here's where I would say, if it was, you know, if you were like young kids of mine, I would say, are you looking at me? Look at me for what I'm about to say. If we learn to listen to God together, we will be forever changed. Well beyond any project or decision. So James had a dream about a building that connected to the chapel at Anvil Island, and then we heard about Graham Smith this week and uh, the accident up there, and then James remembered this dream. And Terry, Jill and Terry, you know Jill and Terry, Terry had a dream about a building. Terry's dream that he had two Saturday nights in a row was about this church and about what he... he well, in the dream, there, were, there was a building project. I'm not going to tell you what the project was because that will put bias on one side of what decisions to make. What's more interesting to me is that Terry had a dream two Saturday nights in a row. And I take note of these things and I listen. And God will speak to each one of us in the ways in which we hear. But it must be guided by word and spirit as well. So last week I was at another church, Cap Church. I really enjoyed my time there. It was great. In fact, I'm thinking of starting attending there, working here still. (laughs) It'd be good, actually, if pastors did that. I call it the North Shore migration. It'd be just great if pastors started doing that instead of parishioners, right? Todd's here, and I left Sutherland to get away from him. Anyway, time prohibits me from giving a, a history of CAP, but it's interesting, and their current context they're asking building questions as well. They haven't ever had a building, but uh, for where they are now, some of them, they're up at Mulgrave, which is like the most beautiful school in the history of the world. Um, Makes the British properties look like slumming it a little bit. Um, And it's not where they chose to be, Cap. It doesn't really fit their personality. So some of them have a sense of exile where they are. My role last week at Cap was to be interviewed by Kim Perot, their lead minister, Um, And uh, this is because they're doing a series on working together as a church. So Dave Sattler from North Star Alliance is up there today. And Pauline um, Sanderson, I think I'm getting the name right, uh, from Hillside will be there soon. And Ken Bell as well is is going up to be interviewed. But the first week of this series, I got to be interviewed and kind of give a little mini sermon in the interview. They asked me questions off the start, like, you know, fun small talk questions like, what are your pet peeves? It's always good to start with things like that. And I actually felt one really strongly. I said, I hate my dishwasher. Um, And I knew the questions in advance, so I was able to prepare. I said, I hate my dishwasher. It's Bosch, so it's good. Well, it is good. But it it has this terrible thing where it beeps when it's done. And when I put the dishes in and let them go for an hour and a bit, chances are I'm going somewhere to relax or read or watch TV or something. And 75 minutes or whatever later, I don't want to hear beep. I don't want preachy appliances. I don't like preachy anything, really, but I definitely don't like preachy appliances. I was telling them this so much, I started to get upset. But anyway, then they moved on to another question. And it wasn't me, and it wasn't their minister, Kim, though she did a great job, but it was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that that place, that little auditorium, seemed to become filled with hope, a sense of positive ministry and future witness and a changing church. It's something to note because of the context. 
for both of us. They asked me, what challenges do you face and what could we pray for for you? So I told them, well, we're a relatively small church that's going to face a relatively big problem soon and talked to them about the wall and the, and the building envelope. They told me, but I also knew, actually, I just knew it and we talked about it, some of their challenges that in the last couple of years, their congregation has been cut in half in terms of size, number of people. They were really quite a big church. And now they're bigger than us, but not much. We talked about how the North Shore can have this migration going on. They said, we'll pray for you with your challenges. What kind of charge would you give us? And I felt compelled in the Holy Spirit to say, well, one of the difficulties you guys face is that you're coming to church and some of the seats beside you that are empty used to be filled with people, good friends of yours, and they've moved on to other places. And again, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, it was a positive feeling. So I was able to say, not only can we identify with that feeling at times, but in in the case of our two churches, some of the people who left Sutherland are the same people who left CAP. They left us, then they left you. And I love those people, but it's an interesting reality. Even talking about some of that, the place was filled with such a sense of hope, not about the past and not about despair, but about the future. One of the things that they asked me to do was to give a favorite scripture. What is your favorite scripture in connecting with your life? Why does it connect? Will you read it to us? I was able, this is quite a feat for me, I think, I was able when they asked me to give one favorite scripture to give them only three. And so I narrowed it down to the beginning and the end of the book of John, the beginning of the book of John where Jesus is calling his disciples and Philip goes to be a follower of Jesus and asks Nathaniel, why don't you come and and follow Jesus? And he mentions Nazareth, remember? And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Put your own geographical place in there. And then Philip says, come and see. And as they're approaching Jesus, Jesus sees Nathaniel before Nathaniel's even met him. And Jesus says, Look, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel feels this connection in this moment with Jesus, and he says to Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I knew you when you were sitting under the tree. In other words, I knew you before you knew that I knew you. You got that? It's one of my favorite scriptures because it's a key part, a key thing in my life. I was known before God before I had any idea that he knew me or what his voice was. At the end of the book, it's my, this one I have shared with you more often, when Jesus appears at the side of the lake to the disciples, they go out fishing. They're as bad fishermen at the end of the gospel as they were at the beginning. Terrible. They can't seem to catch anything. And Jesus appears at the side of the lake and yells out, throw the net on the other side. And they throw the net on the other side, which I have to imagine they'd tried already because they'd been fishing all night. But when they do it this time, they catch so many fish that they, they can't haul the net in. And Peter, whose last most significant encounter with Jesus Christ had been his denial, right? Peter denying that he knew Jesus three times. Peter sees Jesus, recognizes him, says it's the Lord, jumps into the water and runs, this big man running through the water, which is a great picture, towards Jesus. In other words, the one who he had most disappointed in his mind, perhaps, he feels compelled to go towards, not away from. He's still compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. And in that exchange, then, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Remember three times? He erases Peter's betrayals. We talked about this a bit at camp. He erases Peter's denials. The reminder that our sin is not a problem for God. It's a problem for us. In other words, God saves us from our sin because of what our sin does to us. But he never had any problem defeating it. 
And Peter needed to know that that sin was erased in his trust in Jesus Christ. So I shared those two, but then I had to share what was my favorite, and this is the listening, I believe, for us for this morning. It comes, and I've spoken about it here before, it comes from the end of the book of Ezekiel. In the book, the people, it it has to do with exile, people who have been judged and are far away from the land of promise, or will be, and the, the, the leaving, the settling far away, the coming back. The people of God have forgotten God. They have taken up idolatry. They have neglected love. They have forgotten the poor and the outsider. And judgment comes and will come. Visions and events of desolation and destruction. My people have forgotten me. And poor Ezekiel is the one who is tasked with carrying the word of the Lord to the people. His name in the book over and over again becomes the Son of Man. The angel, the theophany, the appearance of God or the voice of God will often call Ezekiel the Son of Man, which is interesting given that's one of the titles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord comes to him and God gives him these crazy object lessons. I thought of you, Ko, when I heard this because it's like, Ezekiel, build a Lego town and put sieges against it and all this, and the people will see what you're doing, and they will say, we should turn back to God, except the people never do that. Ezekiel, pack your suitcases and leave the city, and when you leave the city, people will say, why is Ezekiel leaving with his suitcases packed? And then they'll know, oh, it's because they've turned their backs on me like they've left their first love, right? Except the people don't listen, and they don't get it. And then this terrible thing, God says, I'll take away the joy of your eyes, like the the life, the light of your life. And Ezekiel comes home, let's put it that way, and his wife has died. God actually says, your wife will die. So Ezekiel experiences these terrible burdens with the word of the Lord. And by the way, even then, people don't really listen. And so the, the sense you get is that the land, the temple, the nation, and in my listening, more importantly, Ezekiel himself, face this desolation and destruction. I feel an emotional and a spiritual weariness in Ezekiel. You get wonderful pictures in Ezekiel, like the Valley of the Dry Bones, but that's not my favorite. My favorite comes from chapter 40 and following. Some of the most boring parts of the Bible here, those aren't my favorite, because they're the parts of the Bible that if you've ever read the the whole of your Bible and you need to, are the measurement parts. You ever get to those parts? And he measured the pulpit, and it was 16 inches, and and then he measured this way. It's not exactly the most compelling reading. And from chapter 40 through 46, you get a lot of this kind of talk. He took me to the room where the priests hang their robes, and he showed me the hooks, that kind of thing. And it was 17 cubits, and he said, get your measuring tape. Literally, it says in there, he had a measuring line. Boring parts, unless you've had a broken down temple or house, and you can imagine somebody measuring the new one. Then it's pretty exciting. And I'm not a numbers guy, so I remain uninterested in the specifications, but I get to the best part of the story, and it is the best part. Like when you do a tour or an open house, and you look through inside the place, and then you go outside. Ezekiel is led outside by this angel, this theophany, and he's asked, Son of man, what do you see? Chapter 47. And he sees and describes a trickle of water coming from the corner of the temple into the desolate desert landscape. More to it than that, but we'll keep it at that. The angel says, go stand in it. This is the part you've heard from me before. And Ezekiel stands in it and the bottom of his feet get wet. Just the bottom of his feet. Son of man takes some more steps and he takes some more steps and he says it covered over my ankles. And then you get, you can see it in chapter 47, you get greater description. 
And he goes further and it's up to his knees and he goes further and the water is up to his waist. And he goes so far now then that the water lifts him up. Something remarkable at that moment. I told this scripture more briefly than I have here at CAP that he is now lifted up and he is floating. This man who had experienced desolation and lifelessness and despair If there are words to describe what Ezekiel had felt, even to this moment, even taking this tour of the future temple, the words that I used are that Ezekiel would have felt weighed down. Even in listening to God. Oh, how much more of this can I take? The burden of his people, the burden of the word of the Lord, the burden of desolation, and the burden of his own personal loss, lifeless and dry, so hard to feel any flourishing. And then he is lifted up. And the description in chapter 47, this water flows to the eastern region, goes down to the Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be many fish. For this water goes there. The waters of the sea may become fresh. It even says that the waters that need to be salt waters, they'll stay salt. But there will be life. There will be trees on either side of the river for all kinds of food, and their leaves will not wither or fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Every month they bear fresh fruit. They break the laws of season and cycle. In other words, Ezekiel, who had experienced lifelessness, is absolutely caught up in life. The 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I put Ezekiel into that psalm and say, he lifts me up in quietly flowing rivers, in the river. But I have a complaint before God. And my complaint is that God had blessed him with this vision of life, but he had still lost his wife. And I would argue with God and say, what was the point of that? The only thing I get is that Ezekiel doesn't seem to have this complaint. And whatever pain he feels is apparently contained and transformed within this abundant life. Not gone, but transformed. And so I tell this part of the Bible at CAP, and they ask later about what challenges we face, and I tell them about our building and the need, and I make a joke saying that it's going to cost $3.4 gazillion, or maybe $17 gabillion. And actually, those are more accurate numbers because they might be so foreign to our ability that they might as well sound like that. At the end, a number of people come up to me. So many conversations. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit is present. And often if you're new in a place too, and there's a response and energy. And one woman who'd been on the worship team, right now, today, she's in Africa. They, they had a number of people heading over to, to um, oh, I can't remember the name, Uh, to work with food for the hungry. And she comes up and she said, you told us about that Ezekiel thing, and much later you told us about your church building and the wall that needs to be repaired or whatever you're going to do. And she says, can I tell you that I had a vision, a picture, when you were saying that? You said the wall was leaking. There was water in the wall. And she said, and the picture that I had was that the water in that wall was like the trickle that Ezekiel saw. 
from this will come life and mission and blessing. Will you listen? You know what's interesting about the vision is that it breaks the laws of nature in terms of the flourishing of the trees, but also in terms of the flowing of the stream. Unless fed by all kinds of other sources, streams don't start as this trickle and turn into a river. There must be other sources to join for that to happen. But in this case, the source is the temple starting as a trickle, and further away from the temple, it becomes bigger. There's something in this for our understanding of faith and God. That the revelation, and actually in the book of Revelation, the same kind of image is given, but in the center there's a throne and there's Jesus Christ, the Lamb, and the Lion. And life comes from that. But in the Ezekiel case, and in Revelation, you can read this there as well, that, that the life isn't the life isn't like, well, here's the temple, and let's describe how full of life the temple was. In other words, the trickle that comes from the temple is not for the temple. Get it? So whatever is going to happen here is not so that we can feel better being in this room together. Whatever's happening here, if it's God's grace and direction, the life comes for the rest of the world. It's all about being sent. And away from the temple, there was life, 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 and more life. That's our listening. God is not working so that we can feel alive in this room, though we will if the other happens. God is not working so that our church will be the best. Kim Perot told me that when CAP was in its heyday, that was actually said from the front. Not by her, but by somebody else. We, a minister, we, we have the best church on the North Shore. And they didn't even mean, like, they didn't even mean it in a mean way. God is not working so that we can have the best things, the best programs, the best for us. This is for the healing of the nations and the blessing of the world and the redemption of all things. What will be rebuilt, I am convinced, is more than the walls of the building. What will be rebuilt is the mission of the church. That's what we need to listen for. And you think, well, there's not that many of us. That I, Let me tell you, in faith, that has literally nothing to do with it. There could be ten of us listening for a new mission, and God will work. But if you're just looking for a good church to get what you want... The mission of the church, that's the rebuilding that matters most. How will you be enlivened by the mission of living your life as a witness to the goodness of God? Think of yourself not here, but out there in relationships with friends and family and others, people who need to know about the love of Jesus Christ, and that your church enlivens you and empowers you to speak and to live those messages. I will tell you that whatever desolation you face, whatever uncertainty or fear or lifelessness or worry, whatever real loss or pain or whatever anticipated coming apart of your life. So hear that again. Whatever real loss or pain you're experiencing or have, or whatever anticipated coming apart of your life, and sometimes the anticipated coming aparts are worse than the actual loss. Whatever real loss or pain or whatever anticipated coming apart of your life, that is nothing, nothing at all, in comparison to the blessing that God has for you and for us, and for Ezekiel. And I picture him because you've got to float like this with, your, with his arms out 
And I think of my Lord, Ezekiel floating in that river. And this is for all of us in Christ Jesus. What Ezekiel saw, what did he feel when he was lifted up? And then I hear Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So will you listen and will you pray with us? Will you say, even if it doesn't matter to you that much, will you take time to simply say, I will listen for God's direction for our church community on this? Not in desperation or fear. Will you listen? We're going to have some decisions to make. But don't confuse it as if this is the most important matter at hand because it's not the most important matter at hand. Walls and buildings and construction and reconstruction, they matter on one level. But the most important matter at hand is for us to be able to say, Heavenly Father, where are you leading us? There's life in that. How are you building our church and our lives and revealing your love for this world? And, and I am conscious of the time, but I'm going to finish this because I felt God gave it to me, so you'll have to deal with that. As if we needed more images or pictures or visions, God has blessed us with another this week, a building project. Uh, It was supposed to have happened before this event that I'll describe briefly. I had heard that it was going to be this other week or that other week, but how these things go, permits and blah, blah, blah. Bart and Mir had their house taken away this week. Someone literally took their house away. Uh, It was there. Last Sunday, it was there. And now it's not there. It's gone. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail. Some of us went late at night on Wednesday night, late, Thursday night, early. That's right, right? Like, we left there at like 1 in the morning. And it was a house-moving party to watch them lift up this house and take it away. And I don't want to go into much detail. I'll get them to share the testimony about this maybe next week. But our friend and brother Bart, who leads us in worship and does such a great job in doing that, I think I can say this. Bart has not always been joyfully anticipating this move. Some of you have talked to him. (laughs) So a bunch of us show up Wednesday night late, 11 p.m. or later, we're there, as I said, till much later than that, and this is what we see. I won't even put pictures up right now. I'll let them do that. What is remarkable, as a pastor standing there, I look and see this is just full of every spiritual metaphor that could ever exist, a house being lifted up and moved. We could talk about foundations. Build your house upon a rock. There's the foundation. We could talk about where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. So if your treasure is your house, well, that's difficulty. We could talk about how God speaks in community and the lives of the people and what's go- what this family is going through and what they're encountering. There were neighbors there, tons of neighbors, that late at night, and there were church people mixed in among. It was like a, like a stream of life, a distance from the temple. And I'm standing beside this woman, and it's dark. So you can't really see each other's faces. You'd have to look too closely, and it might be a little too much. So I'm talking to this woman that I don't know, at least didn't think I knew her. And then I, th- I recognize that accent. And then I turn, look a little closer, and it's someone who had been very, very close friends with our family for years when Aiden was younger and played hockey. And he was like, one, her son was one of Aiden's best friends. We know them fairly well. We haven't seen them for, for a number of years, though. I'm like, Ida? Is that Ida? She's Slovakian. So anyway, that's just a shout-out. And, and Ida says, oh, yes, oh, hi, and we start chatting. I'm like, how do you know Barton Mir? She's like, oh, no, don't, don't know Barton Mir. Like, do you mind, did you move? Because I know where they live. No, we didn't move. And so then I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> 
And she said, oh, because I was driving around uh, in the last day or so, and I saw signs, and they were saying there's going to be a house moved and lifted up and moved, and I'd never seen that before, and I wanted to see that. I looked for Bart. How's he holding up, I thought. I thought maybe from some of the conversations that I had from Bart, I knew by this point this wouldn't be true on that day, but earlier, you know, I could have pictured that Bart was wailing and gnashing his teeth or maybe tearing his clothes or maybe lying down in front of the truck saying, nope, 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 we'll live in the house on the truck, that's fine. But I looked and lit up by the orange lights of the truck I saw my friend with a grin on his face. It was better than a smile. It was a grin, like a child watching something wonderful. I don't know if it'll keep going, but at least in that moment, Bart was able to let go of some of the things that he had wrestled with by God's grace. It's another point of listening and add it to the bunch of how we listen to God in our days ahead. When I was leaving Cap Church, as the last illustration, we'll share communion. I'm grateful for, well, I don't know how patient you are. You could be dying right now, but anyway. When I was leaving Cap Church, I'd had so many conversations at the door of the school and throughout, and and, uh, I wanted to get here for the lunch, and so there's two men. Now I'm literally now way away from the auditorium and trying to get out the door to the parking lot and two men come up and one starts talking to me about development. He's done a ton of developments and you guys are in a great space for that and he's going into all kinds of detail and the other guy standing behind him looked like the nicest guy in the world. No, I thought of my father-in-law Mal because he looked so nice and patient and this other guy was talking a lot and I was trying to keep looking at the nice guy, right? Not that the other guy wasn't. He was kind of nice too, but not as nice as the quiet guy. And, and I'm talking to this guy and I keep kind of nodding and then finally the development guy stops and I'm kind of shaking his, thank you so much, I don't remember his name. And, uh, and then the other guy comes up and he kind of puts his head down a bit like he's like a bit nervous to talk to me. And he says, I know you've had, you talked to a lot of people. Can I just, do you mind if I just share one more thing? I'm like, sure. And I put my pastor voice on, right, a little bit. Like, the he's going to share something about his life. Or, you know, I must have really blessed him. <laughs> he's going to tell me. And uh, he's like, do you mind if I share one more thing? I'm like, sure, sure, yeah. And he's like, um, you mentioned that your dishwasher is a Bosch. <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, I used to work for Bosch, and they don't advertise it. It might be difficult to find but there's a way to turn that beep off. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Let's listen together. And I'm telling you, God's answers will be more than we could ever ask or imagine. But we will, each of us, have to let go, myself included. Come, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. Let's pray, and let's pray for the communion together. We always mention, it's in the bulletin too, that uh, you're welcome to receive this communion if you know Jesus or if you would like to. You're also welcome to let it pass if that doesn't describe you or if you have something on your heart that you know you need to make right with somebody else. But on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, the light of the world, took bread and said that it was his body. He referred to the cup, the wine, as his blood. And he told us that his life was given for the life of the world. 
that any building we do as Christians, any future we have, is because what, if he, what he has done for us. And our trust, more than in anything else, is in this. His life given. And so we will receive. We will pass one to another, and we will receive. Come Holy Spirit. The bread of life, the body of Jesus Christ, the cup the blood of Jesus Christ given for the life of the world. And whatever happens next and in the days ahead at Sutherland, we are being called out, sent out, that the world would know. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.